I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back for a brand new episode of Collider Ladies Night. I'm especially excited for this one because I have a favorite on the show right now that I've yet to get the opportunity to talk to. Kate Siegel, Midnight Mass, and so many other things that I'm a massive fan of. Hello, what an intro. Thank you. All right. So we've got our dice tower to start here. I've got eight questions. You get three rolls and we're going to see what you get. All right. We're starting with a number one. Number one is scary stuff. Okay. What subgenre of horror scares you most? Is it a slasher movie, supernatural, you name it? Body horror. Body horror. The fly. You know, in the fly where it's like, oh, and the gooey things. And then I just watched Malignant. And when her own, and spoilers, I was just on the ceiling. I was on um, hard pass, unfollow. You're lucky that I love so many of your titles because bringing up Malignant would get me down that path. And I don't think I would be able to come back. That movie is incredible. (laughs) All right. We got roll number two now. All right. We're up to a five. Five is roll swap. If you could swap roles with anyone in the cast of Midnight Mass, who would you choose and why? I think I would have to take over for Matt Bidell playing Sturge. Matt Bidell is the unsung hero of Midnight Mass. He is doing some incredible character work. We used to call him Grandpa Trashman on set because he's got this beard. And in every scene, he's like taking out the trash or he's like, he's got a cup of coffee talking about fuel. And that's the kind of stuff that just lights my fire. I'm so glad you brought that up because I couldn't agree more. His presence is something that is just like so appropriately powerful throughout the whole season. And Matt Bedell is like a chameleon because if you'd seen him in Altered Carbon or if you see him in Narcos, he is a different looking man. The man looks like a GQ model and he showed up looking like a young Chris Kringle. And we were all like, what's going on with Matt Bedell? It was great. All right, you got one more roll on the tower here. Number eight is Crockett Island because it kind of feels like all of the residents are a little defined by their jobs. If you had to live on an island like that, what would you want your job to be? 
Oh, I am like the witch who has a scary house and I maybe sell like, like handmade potions and things at the farmer's market. And the kids are a little freaked out by going near my house after sundown. I don't think I could imagine a better answer to that question. <laughs> I don't think like neighborhood witch is a job, but I'd make a job out of it. It should I'd be a job. <laughs> if, if you make that a job, I will follow in your footsteps. You will be my role model. We will unionize. I like that plan. All right, let's get into the meat of the conversation now. I feel like this is always a necessary place to start. Do you remember the very first performance you saw, the movie you saw, or personal experience you had that made you say to yourself, I have to be an actor? Oh, I have been desperately following in my sister's footsteps for my whole life. And my sister, when she was in middle school, played Sarah Brown in Guys and Dolls. And I went and saw this and it is, you know, every high school and middle school does this performance. But I saw the way that people were looking at my sister when she was performing and afterwards. And I was like, I need some of that attention right now. And from that moment on, unstoppably committed to being a successful actress. Okay, so the attention is part of it. But do you remember the first role you had where like your connection to the material or the character gave you that kind of level of satisfaction or is it a feeling that you keep you kept on needing to have after that? Yeah, I think um, for girls who were into theater in high school, there's two type of, of people you're going to be. You're either going to be Sarah Brown and Guys and Dolls or you're going to be Abigail in the Crucible. And I was an Abigail in the Crucible type. And that role, which gave me kind of a freedom to express that deeply teenage feeling of rage and sexuality and a safe place within these four walls, these hollowed little O, as Shakespeare calls it, like, oh, that was so gross and referential. I'm sorry. But on the stage, I was able to say things, do things, and express things that I felt I couldn't do outside of that room. And so I'll always look at Abigail in the Crucible as the moment where I realized that acting isn't actually about getting attention. Acting is about storytelling. So I was doing my homework. I read that you went to Syracuse. Did you study acting there? Did, I got my BFA in Syracuse. They have um, a cut program at Syracuse where after sophomore year, you have to re-audition for the program. I failed that three times. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry. So what, what happens? Do so you commit to that track and then you fail that? <laughs> do they push you into another major? Into <laughs> It's so, this is so bougie, like liberal arts school, because if you don't pass your audition, you don't get your BFA, which is the Bachelor of Fine Arts, you just get your BA, which is the Bachelor of Arts. And like, for all of these, like, upper middle class actor types, the BA is like the worst thing they can imagine. I can't imagine a world. And of course, this is not the real world. This is not what is important, but it feels important in the moment. And so I would drag myself into my advisor's office and be like, I have to audition again. I have, you have to let me try again and I'll study harder and I'll work harder and I won't give up. And that is like the, the precursor, that level of stubbornness, I think has followed me through my whole career to get me all the way to Crockett Island. So I love I love talking about going to school to study uh, a craft like this because it's necessary for some, it's not for others. So going through that experience in the end, what is something that you learned in school that you think is invaluable in the work you do today? And then what is something that happened when you hit your first set that no schooling in the world could have prepared you for? It's funny because um, I think the thing that was invaluable was the four years I got to make mistakes 
and to be a messy actor and to be a bad actor and to get drunk with my friends and then not have real life repercussions for that. I got to make my mistakes in private before Facebook exists. And unfortunately, when I stepped on set, I realized the acting training was completely off because I was being trained for Shakespeare and theater and projecting to the back of the room and um, a lot of intellectualizing of the experience, which for me gets me in my head and completely out of the reality of talking and listening. So I had to take everything that Syracuse taught me and sort of reframe it and get it out of this, I need to get an A, I need to pass my class, I need to pass this audition and get it into a much more messy artistic place. And so it gave me all the mistakes I needed to be an artist, but it also gave me boundaries that really messed with my head. So you graduate from that program in 2004, I believe, and I'm looking on IMDb, it says your first screen credit is 2007. What happens during that gap? Is it kind of just doing the audition grind? So do you have like a sad music sting for when things get sad? Because <laughs> like- I, mean, I could put one in. <laughs> wah, wah. So just like prepare yourselves, y'all. So my dad died really suddenly at the beginning of my senior year of Syracuse. He like healthy guy playing tennis had a massive heart attack was had passed before he hit the ground. Understandably, this shook up my whole life. And I said, you know what? I don't want to be an actress. It's just like, I don't want to be in that place of emotions. I don't want to be in this place of rejection. And so I went back to DC. I grew up outside DC and I decided I was going to work in international finance. Obviously. <laughs> and so I spent a summer interning at the World Bank. And um, I was like, this is going to be me and it's going to be very cerebral and it's going to be all of the stuff that I think would keep me from feeling the depth of the loss. Like I was like, I'll just live on the outsides of emotion. And so and then I was scrolling when I was supposed to be preparing information about the Sudan. I was just scrolling backstage postings. And there was an audition at the Folger Theater in DC for Much Ado About Nothing. And I was like, I don't know, whatever. And at that time you had to like print out your headshot and like staple your resume to the back. It's like old school submissions. And I mailed it in and they called me in for an audition. And in true Kate Siegel form, I didn't book that one, but <laughs> um, that the Folger called me in for the next show and I got sucked back into acting. It's like, I tried to leave. Every time I tried to leave, they pull me back in. And so what I was doing before 2007 was Shakespeare in DC. And then eventually it got to the point where I had to choose New York or LA and I flipped a coin and then I was in LA. Did you literally flip a coin? Yeah. Oh, oh wow. Yeah. I'm like Apparently a cow. That's how I should have made the decision. It would have been easier then. It, it's the same amount of, of likelihood. If you do the pros and cons lists, like you don't know nothing. We don't know nothing about time. Pretty much. And, I, you know, we don't know we don't know nothing about anything in this industry. And I feel like finding a like a level of security and a foundation in this kind of work is next to impossible. And also finding like real pure confidence in your work, too. But what is yeah. the very first screen credit that you got that made you say to yourself, like, I'm here, I'm doing it and I really can make this a career for myself? I guess it's my pathology that I always thought that. Like even in the face of constant and persistent rejection, people being like, no, not yet. No, you're not ready. No, you're not good enough. No, you're too much this. No, you're not enough that. I just, I had been through enough by that point where I was like, no, 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 I'm doing this. 
I'm do I'm going to do this and you're not going to stop me. I'm already doing it. And so it was almost that level of like blinders, self-delusion that kept me going because I was like I am a working actress. It's just a matter of time before reality catches up with that. And that's something I don't have that kind of confidence in any other place in my life. And I don't have that kind of confidence in my work being good or bad. I don't have that confidence in in my writing. What I have is just a fact that the world I want to create, I will make happen. I like that way of looking at it. I feel like I share a similar similar approach to all of this craziness that we do. Yep, yep, yep. So turning to Mike now, at what point in your collaboration did you realize that he was an actor's director that really suited how you like to work, where he brought something out of you that maybe other directors out there couldn't? Yeah. Um, so I met Mike for the first time in an audition setting, and it was nine pages of sides. And this was when I was deep in the grind, where it was like I was going out three to four times a week and things were getting close, but nothing was catching on fire. And I was in a real athletic mindset where I was like, what do I do to achieve what people want? And how do I practice? And what da, 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 very linear in my thinking about being what somebody else wanted me to be. And I loved this script. Obviously, Mike was a genius way before I showed up and like way before I knew who he was. And I really wanted this part. And I worked really hard to do it right and be a good girl and get an A plus on this audition. And I went in and I did the nine pages and he gave me a direction and I did the nine pages again. And generally speaking with an audition that size, you get about two or three takes. They don't have an hour to work with you. And we had finished and I felt the room, like there was like the tinders were smoking, but I hadn't caught anything on fire. And I was really beating myself up in my head. And I, I didn't want to get out of the chair. I didn't want to leave because I loved the script so much. And Mike looked at me and he kind of sat there for a second and he was like, can you just do one more? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was waiting for the notes he was gonna give me. And I was like preemptively nodding. Cause I was like, I'm a good girl and I will take this note and I will do a good job. And he looked at me and he waited until I stopped nodding. And he said, can you just do one just for you? And I was taken aback cause I didn't know what that meant. I had forgotten. And, um, and, and something in me was brave enough to take the amount of time, which felt like an eternity was probably two minutes and figure out what it was that I wanted. And my acting changed forever on that day. I love that story so much. That was Oculus, right? No, that was a movie that was not made. Oculus. Yeah. I got a call again in, in the Kate Siegel story. I didn't book that one, but, (laughs) um, in, the realm of the world like a couple months later he called and he said the person who's playing this part in oculus she broke her leg and she can't do this anymore and it's a small part but i really want to work with you and i promise if you do this for me there will be dividends in the future that was, was not lying <laughs> not lying there were dividends all right I have two of them at home so the next that too so the next one here that i have to ask you about is obviously hush which is a fantastic film if anyone out there has not seen it please go look it up and watch it right now i do have to stop here because there is something you've missed Ooh, what it's called the curse of the black dahlia 
So I didn't entirely miss it. Like I, I looked it up and I looked into it. You can't give up on the curse of the Black Dahlia. Like this is a reality of every actress. She is gonna start somewhere. Do not let them think that I started at Oculus and then hush. Please do not disillusion these women. I started in the non-union $100 a day curse of the Black Dahlia where a character dies by running up and down the steps too much. <laughs> I hope everybody finds it and realizes that like we all start somewhere. I hadn't been able to find where to watch it, but I feel like now that you just explained to me what happened to your character, I am determined to see. Oh, no, 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 no. My <laughs> character dies in a much funnier way. Oh. There is uh, just this one character. I mean, I, I, my sister will occasionally send me video clips of her reenacting some of that movie where I, a 24-year-old Kate Siegel, is um, promoted to boss of a whole company. And I'm very serious, I'm a business lady, Siegel. It is, I mean, I hope sales go through the roof of this hilarious and wonderful movie. You should like record some sort of, you know, like a a, a commentary or a riff track. On the movie. We gotta do a riff track, yeah. yeah like a riff track, so it'd be very amusing. I mean, um, you gotta find it first, but yeah. So Hush, I feel like there's a so million now, things. Now like, we can go to Hush. We can get to Hush, which is incredible. I can ask you a million things about this, but one thing that I was reading up about a little was the ADR process on this, because it sounded like the sound on that was an absolute nightmare. So what was it like for you jumping in the sound booth and doing that ADR? Is it like, is it just immensely challenging to have to recreate all of the breathing and pretty much your entire performance like that? Um. I, I hate to disappoint you, but we didn't do a lot of ADR. We didn't have a lot of money. We didn't have a lot of time. And so really that is up to Jonathan Wales, our sound designer, pulling out the tracks of all of the people stumping around and me going in and doing a couple of efforts and do, which is what like they call it when you go into the sound booth and you have to go, <laughs> which is always disturbing and never fun. Um, but yeah, it was more in the sound designer. They covered the sound of the camera moving with, we used glaciers cracking. We used fetal, uh, fetal heartbeats in the wound, in, in the womb. Interesting slip there. Um, but a lot of that was in sound design. So like, thankfully, I didn't have to do a lot of ADR or hush. That is absolutely wild though, that you guys had to do that. It's like, nothing gives me more anxiety, whether it's making a film or doing these interviews than thinking about something possibly happening to my audio. Oh my God, oh my God. It's the difference between professional quality material and like a sad podcast. <laughs> Hill House is next. So yet another one that I wanna ask you a million questions about, but I'm gonna ask you about my, my favorite jump scare in the entire show, which is also one of my favorite jump scares of all time, because I'm not an easy one to catch with moments like that. It's the scene in uh, episode eight. I, I don't know, just tell me everything about filming mm -hmm. that and making that kind of jump scare work really well on set, even when it's not all coming together in the same way that it would for an audience member. Yeah, well, what's fun about that jump scare is that one of the reasons it works is because there hadn't been any other jump scares like that up until that moment. It was really there were stings and like a quick shot of Carla's character or like the creepiness of the bent neck lady and then she drops in. But there hadn't been a pure jump scare until episode eight. So everybody was lulled into a real false sense of security like there would like it's going to be scary, but it's not going to happen. And then. We were running the scene, the car was on stages, so we weren't in on a street. We were on in like, uh, they have all these 
um, LED screens around you projecting uh, the road you're going by and, you're, and Elizabeth Reeser was pretending to drive. And we were had always been playing, been told to play the scene straight. You're not in a horror show, you're in a family drama. Play the scene. And we were, and unbeknownst to us, Mike had told Victoria, jump in whenever you want. And so she did. And that react, we were, she got us so bad because she wasn't supposed to come in for another two pages. We had a whole thing happening. And when she came in, I think it was just, it got us so completely off guard. It was brilliant. And that noise she made, that noise, she was always great at those, the scary noises. It's incredible. It just, it works so well that in my brain, the only way that I can compute something like that is, oh, it was just perfectly timed, perfectly timed to hit at that particular line. Oh, you have the A plus mindset. You're going to get that gold star. Sorry, it must've been a literal, yeah. All right, Bly Manor, let's squeeze in one question about this one. So yeah. I, I know that um, whenever Viola was faceless, it was a stunt performer playing her, but I, I was curious from your perspective, what does it feel like for her when she is dragging bodies into the lake? Do you think that there is, is a sadness to it, a satisfaction? Can she not feel anything at all at that point? I think um, there is, uh, she's not feeling anything. I think what it is, is there's a point of connection where she's expecting it to be her daughter and it's not because she's just trying to get her daughter back, right? And so the, the interior experience of this very terrifying monster is, I have to go up to the bedroom where my baby is and bring my baby home. It's a, it's a longing, it's a grief. And then after, and I think there's a belief in her that when the skin meets the right skin, there's freedom, which you see sort of towards the end of the show. So when it's not that, she's completely gone. Then it's just, there is no nothing. Then she's back into the sleep of the sleep, walk, wake, cycle, sleep, wake, walk cycle. cycle. It doesn't matter how many times I watch that show in that particular episode. Hurt, it, it hurts my heart, but it fills my heart ultimately all at yeah. the same time. It's such a beautiful thing. And it's true of, of Intrepid and Mike Flanagan's projects is that they always make you question, who is the monster? Why do you think that? So true. So true. Speaking of which, let's get into Midnight Mass now. So I know Mike had been working on this idea for a while. When it was in its earliest stages, did he share much of what it looked like back then with you? And how does that compare to what we get in the final product? So the first incarnation of Midnight Mass was in 2010 and it was a novel. And so, it, and he has about three chapters of it and I had read it and it was great. And then it was a movie and it was great. And then it was a series that was taken around town and everybody passed on it. But certain things happened in that time. Like for example, he got married, he had kids, he got sober. So he had written about sobriety before he was sober. And, and so it, it, it was a slow growing plant. It wasn't like Hush that sprung up like bamboo where you can basically watch it impale somebody if you wanted to. This was like a really slow bloom. And it, it almost feels like one of those corpse flowers that blooms once a year. And it was just a matter of perfect timing that we got it exactly on the bloom. So another thing I was reading about is that the Aaron Riley relationship changed a lot over the years. What is the biggest difference between where it started and where it winds up? Well, I think where it started is kind of a more youthful idea of what love and loss is because before you've lived 
into your early 30s, early 40s, you have a sense of like what it would be like to see your high school sweetheart again. How would you feel? Could you get back together with them? Maybe they were the love of your life. And but as you get older and you experience more, you realize that you really can't go back home again. And to fall in love with your high school sweetheart would be a whole new experience. You would be technically falling in love with a whole new person. Maybe you just recognize certain elements. And I think his understanding of that deepened. And so it let Riley and Aaron feel more like, like the ghost of passion, as opposed to like, it was fireworks when they saw each other again, and they're like deeply in love and they're immediately together. Because that's just not the way it goes with when you think of what the two of those people have been through. What a good way to describe what you ghost ghost of passion. Mm-hmm. That's very appropriate. Yes. Um, did you always know that you wanted to play Aaron? Was there ever a point where you considered tackling a different role in the ensemble? Um, I learned very early on to sit back and let Mike put me where he thinks I will be of most service. I think campaigning in the Flana fam, like as like all the actors, our little troop. It can backfire. You get a couple cards to play. And um, I had, Aaron is so much softer than anyone else I've ever played. I tend to play uh, cerebral, uh, sharp women. And to be given the opportunity to play Aaron, I think I needed his faith in me to be like, no, 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 I know you. And you're. we need to get this soft, this, Aaron is about the quality of light. She is the quality of light in the room. And it takes a certain amount of, you can't, you can't force it. You can't, oots, Aaron. Like Theo had a a lot of tension to her. Viola had a ton of tension to her. Aaron, as a performer, I had to be completely relaxed. The story needed it. And so when he came to me with it, I was like, okay, okay, okay. And I paced in my bathroom for a while thinking like, all right, am I willing to show this? Am I willing to fail at this? Because if you're not willing to fail, then you shouldn't try. And I thought, yeah, all right, I'll, I'll try to fail. And I think um, it really surprised me at every turn that Aaron showed up, that I showed up for Aaron and Aaron showed up for me. It doesn't surprise me. <laughs> all right, let's get into some spoilers now. I'm gonna put a big spoiler warning up. Goodbye if you have not seen Midnight Mass. All right, so the first scene that I wanted to ask you about was the what happens when you die speech because there, there's a turn in that conversation for Erin that I find really intriguing where you know she's kind of telling a darker story at first with, with the dove's wings being clipped, but mm-hmm. then she has a really like beautiful and, and heartening take on what happens to her unborn baby. So what was it like figuring out exactly how to craft that evolution within that scene for her? Well, um, luckily the writing there is just exquisite. It's the most perfectly built playground. So I started by obviously reading it and memorizing it over and over and over again and running it over and over and over again. And then um, I have children and I have children that I don't have anymore. And so when the time came, my job again was to get out of the way. It wasn't about trying to craft a perfect idea of how we're going to, the arc is going to be from the sadness of my mother to the glory of my child or from loss to loss or from, from 
um, the piece to the whole. It was more about be truly in the room and know who you are, know who Aaron is, and then try to explain it to Riley, my childhood love. Like what has happened to me since I, it's truly I'm telling him what has happened to me since I've seen you. And yeah, I, I don't quite know how to, to describe it better than that. It was just an, an act of stripping away as opposed to building. Here, here's another particular moment that it might be difficult to pinpoint the exact transition here, but I am fascinated by the boat scene in, in terms of the position that he puts her in and then how she processes what she just experiences and winds up bouncing back and, and taking that information after such a huge moment of like fear and grief and then actually acts to try to help the island. So we don't, we, I mean, we do get to see that moment, but what was it like for you basically trying to process the fact that Riley put her in like a terrifying position, but then having her come out the other side in a way that could help her loved ones? Mm -hmm. Well, he, I think because of the day they spent together in the, what happens when we die day, he had a sense of her inner steel and he knew, and he says in the boat, I'll never, I was never as strong as you. I know you're going to go back. I want you to leave, but I know you're going to go back. So he knew. And I just took that as gospel because at that point, Aaron and Riley are honest with each other. And then um, Mike and I talked a lot about how long it would take somebody to burn alive God. and what that would smell like and what that would look like, like the real authentic moment to moment of what was going to happen in front of Aaron which is why they run that scream over the credits to give it a sense of time, how long it takes. And then we come back after this, this kind of N quality, this neutral quality between two episodes. And it's funny you say she comes through it because I never felt that. I felt that from that moment on, you never see Aaron smile again. Like Aaron's like, she doesn't come back until she sees Riley again. And so what has happened, in my opinion, and this is for this is what's the beauty of art is it is completely up to interpretation and your opinion, the viewer is as valuable as mine, the performer, is that Aaron in that moment knows she will be sacrificing her life for the community. And there's and she has gone through something so traumatic that she is in shock for the next two episodes. She need time wise. It's only been a day. So until, and she knows this thing and she's still in, she will be in that rowboat in my mind until she's in the church. And then she starts seeing this thing happen and you kind of see Aaron wake up when people are holding the cups. And she's like, wait, no, no, we have to do something. Because before that, she still had not fully digested. And in some cases, maybe literally, because there's a lot of ash that flies around, she hasn't digested Riley. And then she is the reluctant hero. The ashes burned away and Aaron looks around and she's like, can I curse on this podcast, on this show? Oh, please do. She's like, oh fuck, there's no one else but me. I guess I have to do the things. And so she's not a Ripley. She's not like a Xena warrior princess. She is a reluctant hero who, who finds herself unable to do anything but save the people she loves. I know. Like hearing you describe it, like all those visuals and those emotions just immediately come flooding back. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> all 
All right, I got to hit another specific scene towards the end because just in general, I am fascinated by gore and creature effects and all of that kind of stuff. So Aaron's demise, it feels like that was all blocked and filmed in an incredibly specific way. So what did you guys talk about in terms of the framing of, of her death? All right, actually, I'm going to make this very complicated and make it a twofold question. Great, the ready. framing of her death, because like there's something about it that feels very sensual about it. And then also her her understanding of what she's able to do in that moment, just knowing that she has control over the angel in that particular moment. Yeah. To degree, at least. I think um, there's a couple of things that happened. One that was shot on a few different days. So when the angel takes me and drops me in the graveyard, that was shot on location. And I had, I swear to God, I had a whole plan. I had the best plan. I was gonna do these things and I'd worked out physicality. And then Quentin shows up in that suit and he's terrifying to look at because that was real. And he had the wings on at that time and he's covered in blood. I have the wound on my neck. And the second that man started to hold me down, I freaked out. I freaked, nothing I had planned came true because all I could think of was get off me, get off me, get off me, get off me. And it was really scary and like triggering light. It was just, it, it was, and I think that feeling led, and I'm glad you picked it up because it is sort of sensual because the whole thing felt like a violation. And I'm, I'm kind of talking around the word rape but it is, the whole thing felt like a violation. And at a certain point, Erin relaxes, you see it, and she realizes the opportunity she has. And I thought a lot about the Talmudic character Lilith, who is pre-Eve, and she wouldn't lie on her back for a man. And so God kicked her out of the freaking garden and she became a night walker. And, Trust me, the whole, the Bible is just vampires. It's vampires all the way down. But um, I thought about that. And in that moment, her her pulling him in, her receiving of him and her taking charge of her trauma, I thought was extremely important. And Mike had that, that scripted that Aaron pulls him in. And when I, I was like, I don't know how anybody who is being eaten alive has the wherewithal or the strength to do that. And I, the only thing I could think of is that the women I know who have been assaulted are the strongest women I know. And they are the ones with the deepest reservoirs of strength because they've been to hell and they've come back. And I think about Aaron in that way as being someone who, even though I couldn't imagine having that amount, that amount of strength, she has it. I feel like they're going to kick me out soon. You know, they are. All right. I got the one minute. I'm just going to, I'm going to wind it down, but I'm going to tell you, you are incredible in this show. You are incredible in everything that I've ever seen you in. I'm going to circle back and watch the the Black Dahlia, and we'll Please. talk about that one day. <laughs> Huge congratulations to you, Kate. And I can't wait to chat again for another project soon. Yeah, thank you. It was great talking to you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.